refugees to be able to resettle in the way that is best for their families and letting, um, you know, trusting them that they can make choices for their families. And so just because the policy says something happens doesn't mean that the people who are the recipients of the policy feel like it has accomplished that thing. Welcome back to another episode of Seeking Refuge. This is Emily Jensen and Sandy Samani, and we are here with Dr. Molly Fee, a postdoctoral fellow at Oxford's Nuffield College to discuss her research. Hi, we are so excited to talk to you today. Um, could you please take a moment to introduce yourself for our audience? Hi everyone, my name is Molly Fee and I'm a postdoctoral prize research fellow in sociology at Nuffield College at the University of Oxford. Could you talk a little bit about um, the specifics of your research currently? Sure, so um, I primarily study refugee resettlement and forced migration trajectories. And so most of my work has looked at resettlement in the US context um, and the experience of refugees who are on their way to be resettled to the US. Um, and I use ethnographic methods um, to look at the experience of resettlement from the perspective of arriving refugees, and also um, looking at how the service providers who are tasked with doing the work of resettlement uh, work within the structural and financial constraints that are put on them um, to do the work of resettlement. And could you explain a little bit more about what ethnographic methods include? Yeah, so ethnographic methods is really um, based in participant observation. So um, it's sort of doing alongside um, the what you're studying. So when I was um, doing research within resettlement agencies to understand more um, about how the resettlement program is implemented on a daily basis, what that's like for arriving refugee families. Um, I was working as a casework assistant in the offices. So I was shadowing caseworkers, shadowing employment specialists as they um, did their work and then also sort of learning alongside them and, and doing some of the work that they're um, tasked with doing. And so I think the benefit of doing ethnographic methods through this very participatory approach is that not only do you hear people talk about things, not only do you see them, but you also feel them yourselves. And so one example that I'll give um, is that being a casework manager in a refugee resettlement agency is really difficult. It's really exhausting. You're constantly on the move. You're constantly responding to client issues that come up. And it's one thing for someone to tell you that potentially in an interview. It's another thing when you're doing it. You start at eight in the morning and then come 5.30, all you've done is drive around all day and you never even stop to eat your lunch. Um, and so it's sort of that that added layer of the of the experience of it and feeling it, um, so there is a greater degree of understanding and empathy, I think, um, with the people whose lives you're studying. So um, along with participant observation, a lot of ethnographers also do um, interviews to supplement what they're seeing and have time to um, probe more deeply into questions that may have come up in the field. So yeah, that's a little bit about ethnography. I think that often um, 
there are different ways to study different topics and really it's about finding the right method to answer the research questions that you have. All right, great. Thank you for that. Um, so it seems that like a lot of your research is based around like the refugee resettlement experience and your current book seems to want to redefine the narrative of like what resettlement looks like, um, trying to get away from like an artificially positive narrative. Do you agree with that statement? And how did past experiences lead you to that kind of like focus and like wanting to understand that better? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually came to the um, to be interested in studying refugee resettlement many, many years ago when I was a college student um, and I was looking for a summer internship that had something to do with international relations. And I came across an internship at a refugee resettlement agency in Boston, and I spent a summer at that agency um, supporting the work that they were doing with newly arrived refugee families. And um, the eight weeks that I spent at that agency had a very strong impact on me um, and really shaped the trajectory of my studies and my career afterwards. And I think what struck me the most um, and really stayed with me was the various moments of shock and disappointment that come with resettlement. And I think that resettlement is a very important tool of humanitarian protection. It is often life-saving, um, and it's something that I think we should continue to do and do more of, but I don't think we can ignore how difficult it is to be resettled and how difficult that experience is. And it's not, whereas it, it, it may solve certain aspects of someone's legal status and security and safety, and those are very important things to address, but it doesn't solve everything that comes with forced migration and protracted displacement and everything that has happened in their lives up until that point. So there's been a lot that's been written about sort of the shortcomings of U.S. resettlement, whether it's looking at um, the disappointment that comes with employment and career trajectories when refugees arrive, the quality of housing that refugees are initially put into, um, and many of the aspects of um, rebuilding life in a new country. And so what I'm hoping to do with my book that I'm working on is really reframe resettlement as another displacement for refugees. And I'm hoping that through this displacement framing it brings to life all of the um, contradictions and challenges that come with resettlement. Yes, it's a very important thing. Yes, it's a wanted migration, but there's also a lot of uprooting um, that comes with resettlement as well. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. And then also just for kind of the audience, I wanted to add a statistic from one of your papers. So, they're less than 1% of um, refugees are ever resettled. So just to kind of put that in perspective with um, when you say let's let's do more resettlement, right? Less than 1%. Yeah, and I think that's a, it's a really important statistic that's often 
used to say that anyone who gets resettled should feel lucky that they were among the 1%, right? That it's a very rare thing to get resettled and they should just be happy that they were one of the few who got resettled. And I think that that's sort of a cop out because it means that it lets us get away with doing it in a manner that's not fully addressing all of the needs of the people who are arriving. Right. Okay, so my next question is also like specifically about one of your articles. Um, it's talking about the temporary stay in Vienna. Um, and so that was, you know, it was one of the places where people were kind of stayed in between during the process of uh, resettling to America. Um, and so one of my questions I had about it is that you talk um, quite a bit about like the negatives of having this waiting space in between resettlement. Um, and so some of the things you mentioned are like the inability to work or to go to school during that time, um, anxiety due to the length of the stay, as well as the fact that there is a very like strong lack of information. So you're not really told like how much longer is left in the process or what's going on. Um, and also like during that, there's, um, I think you called it cultural orientation, but a really purposeful narrative of reestablishing America as like not just being a land of dreams where things you want can come true. Um, but I wanted to ask if you had seen or discussed any positives that come out of this experience. About the time that they're waiting? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, this the research that I did in Vienna, it's a very particular pathway that um, was available to Iranian religious minorities who have to come to Vienna, Austria first to go through the final processing stages for their resettlement applications. And I think that, you know, it's a pathway that prevents these refugees from having to undergo physically dangerous journeys. But at the same time, there are still costs associated with this period that they're waiting in uncertainty in Vienna. And I think that, yeah, well, sure, there are some um, there are some positives. I think that the the work I did focused more on, you know, what were the costs of this period of waiting. But I think that there's um, relief that these people feel that finally they're they're out of a constant state of religious persecution, um, that they finally have made it out and can sort of take that sigh of relief. Um, there's also, I think, some people um, were engaged in community building. You know, they spent a lot of time with the other families um, that were awaiting resettlement. People felt more comfortable practicing their religion um, in a more organized, free way in a way that they couldn't when they were living in Iran. So I think that, yes, they're definitely, it was like they were getting tastes of it, um, but they weren't able to fully enjoy the fact that they had managed to leave um, because there was still this question mark about how long the process would take and if they would get approved for resettlement in the U.S. And if they didn't get approved, there were pretty dire consequences for them. So I think that it sort of was this hopeful but not quite there yet period. And it was hard for people to get out of that headspace of being so concerned with the outcome of their applications. There were a lot of people I talked to who 
were partway through university degrees and they said, I know I should be using this time to finish writing my master's thesis, but I just can't focus because I'm so concerned with the status of my application. Or I know I should be using this time to improve my English, but it's just, I'm, I can't do anything really, but, um, but think about the process. So I think that, you know, they're, once people arrived in the US and their applications had been successful, they were able to sort of look back on that time in Vienna with a somewhat rosier glasses than when they were in it um, and in sort of that anxiety producing waiting. All right, that makes sense. <laughs> so our next question, question also has to do with a like a specific quote, um, but I think Emily's gonna read it for you. Yeah. yeah. So it says, the refugee experience is characterized by waiting, waiting for the war to end, waiting for aid, waiting for resettlement, and waiting to hear from or join loved ones. This state of limbo is an intrinsic byproduct of the international refugee assistant regime, the consequences of which are exacerbated when countries like the U.S. abruptly curtail their resettlement program. The question I had to this is relating to like that, that concept of waiting, right? So if we think of waiting as being this almost like atemporal space where it kind of exists outside of the, the way time usually runs. Some of the questions I had were one of the one is how does forcing refugees into that atemporal space affect transition in their destination country? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's a really important thing to think about. We often when we hear stories in the news about resettlement when we you know think about the process of refugee resettlement it always starts the moment a family lands in the US and that kind of ignores everything that's happened in their life up until that moment and when people arrive in the US they bring with them everything that's happened to them before and i think that you know, these these moments of waiting that are part of displacement, particularly when you're applying for resettlement, it just reminds you over and over again that you don't have control over the outcome of what happens next in your life. You don't have control over when something happens. You don't have control over if something happens. And other people, other governments are making decisions that are so consequential to your future. Um, and so I think it's this um, constant reminder of people people's powerlessness and they're told being told that they're powerless. And that's a really difficult thing to have happened to you over and over again. And so when people arrive in the US, I think there's a lot of hope that that will finally change, that they'll finally be able to take control over their lives. And unfortunately, a lot of the ways that um, the US resettlement program structures its service provision in a very short amount of time when, um, when refugees arrive is that there are certain core services that need to happen according to a certain timeline and in a certain way. And so once again, people are being told what they have to do, where they should be working, you know, when they have to do this. And there's, again, this feeling of um, being at the whim of other people's schedules, decisions, preferences. Um, and I think that it can be really hard and really disappointing for people who are very ready to take control over their lives and build their lives in the way they've been waiting to do for a really long time. 
What would you say that we could do as a global society to restructure that experience so the negatives are minimized and the positives are maximized? Yeah, I think that finding ways to allow for more choice and preference in the resettlement process would be really important. I know there are um, pilot programs going on right now, particularly with the rollout of private refugee sponsorship in the U.S., where refugees are able to rank destination choices so that there is um, a bit more control over where people end up. Typically, um, for refugees who are arriving in the U.S. without prior family connections, their destination is chosen for them. Um, And sometimes they're told at the last minute where they'll be going. Sometimes the destination is switched at the last minute. So it really sort of reminds them again that they're not, you know, their destiny is just kind of a, a pin on a map that can be moved around at any moment. So I think that finding ways to acknowledge and allow for preference and choice would go a really long way in um, helping refugees feel like they are also in control of their own lives. So our next question is um, kind of asking if you think there are any calls to action um, that you would like to share with the audience or with us, Um, anything that you think that we as global citizens or citizens of a global society um, can do to work on bettering that experience? Yeah, I mean, I think that once again, with private sponsorship um, starting to become more common in the U.S., I think there is a tendency for people to have a lot of goodwill that can sometimes be a bit overpowering. Um, And so really to leave space for, um, you know, people who arrive through the resettlement program um, have already made it this far. They, for the most part, um, are very capable people who know what they want in their lives. And so I think that sometimes at the beginning, yes, they need a little bit of support to know how to get set up, but um, to really let people regain control of their own lives um, in a meaningful way and not um, slip into a role where um, people feel like they need to do things for people. Um, And so really giving that power to refugees to be able to resettle in the way that is best for their families and letting, um, you know, trusting them that they can make choices for their families rather than feeling like there needs to be this constant intervention. Very good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so my my next question goes back to um, more of the ethnographic methods. Um, So in one of the classes I'm taking right now, we had this quote that I wanted to share. And so um, it's by Taru and Lalita. Um, And so the quote is that when you do things and if you create media without working on understanding the mis- or the confusions or the misunderstandings, um, you will, quote, not, will not merely reproduce the confusions, but compound them. And so my question is that if you didn't have direct contact or interviews with the population you study, what misunderstandings do you think you would compound? Yeah, that's a, a fantastic point. Um, I think that a lot of what I found through participant observation is that when policies are implemented, there's a lot of um, unintended consequences. And I think that people 
when things don't go away, go the way that people expect them to go. They try and justify why things happen that way and come up with a reason, you know, an explanation for why this has happened the way it has. And often that's not fully based on the reality. And it's the result of these unintended consequences of sort of larger scale policy decisions. So one example is that refugees who are arriving through the resettlement program, for the most part, know that there's a certain amount of money that's allocated to each arriving refugee when they come to the U.S. And this money has, it's a little bit over $1,000 per arriving refugee. And this money um, in the past has been used somewhat differently by different resettlement agencies in different cities based on how it seemed to work best for them to use this money. So in some cases, a lot of the money went directly into the hands of the arriving refugees. In other cases, it um, was used as a budget by the resettlement agencies to take care of the initial housing, furniture, household good needs, and rent um, for the family. So less of it actually went into the hands of the arriving refugee. Um, in more recent years, the U.S. government has tried to standardize this a bit more. And there are reasons why they do that, because they want the money to be used in particular ways, and they don't want any of it to go to things that aren't for initial setup costs. As a result, less of it has gone into the hands of the arriving refugees. And so there's a lot of mistrust that builds because people have expectations. They've been told there will be a certain amount of money that they get when they arrive. Um, and when in the end, they only get a few hundred dollars, they feel like something went wrong. They weren't, they were told that they would get over a thousand dollars and here's a few hundred. And that's because the resettlement agencies are doing things like um, putting down payments on future months of rent, um, paying for furniture for their apartments, um, household goods, all of those expenses that come with arriving. Um, and so because there's this unmet expectation, there's also this narrative that has come to surround it where people think that potentially their resettlement agencies have cheated them out of some of the money that's owed to them. Um, and so this was a narrative I heard a lot in interviews that I did with people who had been resettled was that they, a lot of people held this sort of deep-seated resentment that they didn't get what they were supposed to get to help their family settle in the US. Um, if I hadn't also been doing the participant observation in the resettlement agency, seeing every day how case managers were managing these funds, um, making sure they got receipts for everything. Case managers have a list of everything that they need to put in a home and they can't choose not to put certain things in the home because then they wouldn't be doing their job. Um, so. They have to make decisions to spend the client's money on things that maybe the client doesn't think they need, but the case manager has to do it to fill the responsibilities of their job. So um, I would say that, yeah, participant observation can really sort of help you understand the narratives um, and justifications from multiple different parties in a situation and 
when I shared with the caseworkers that people still felt like they weren't getting the money that was allocated to them, the caseworkers were so distraught because they felt like they had tried so hard to dispel these myths that people were going to get this money in cash in their hands. And so it was just kind of this um, this thing that had taken on a life of its own. And it was so important to to know how caseworkers were managing the money and then also how people were interpreting the use of their funds to kind of get the full picture of um, what was going on in that particular situation. Um, so I'm going to read two quotes from uh, your article that came out in 2019. Um, so with few alternatives, RA caseworkers must find ways to exploit the USRPs over-reliance on documents or suffer the consequences. Caseworkers ultimately become the prisoners of their own myth of compliance as their paperwork substantiates the prevailing assumption that the implementation of the USRP largely follows policy, perpetrating the status quo. When caseworkers cannot freely disclose programmatic shortcomings for fear of retribution, deficiencies in resettlement services cannot be remedied at a national level. And then the second quote is, while caseworkers find creative ways to get by, refugees are left with little choice but to rely on an unpredictable and imperfect system. Is there anything in that that you would want to or be able to expand on? And is there any new research to add or any calls to actions around that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that research, it was really looking at what is the task given to resettlement agency caseworkers and what are the coping mechanisms that they have adapted in order to be able to do their job, which is a very, very difficult job. They're told to implement a federal program in a very standardized way, in a very short amount of time. And the clients that they're serving, arriving refugees, are obviously coming, are from various life experiences, different family situations. There's no one standard experience of being a refugee. And so there's this mismatch between what they're told to do and how they can best serve their refugee clients. And so what I saw was that people were constantly adapting to the needs of their clients. But at the same time, they had to prove that they were doing these very standardized protocol of services. And so I found that they, the caseworkers used paperwork in a creative way. Resettlement agencies are put in a very vulnerable position where they need to show certain benchmarks. They need to show that they have done everything that's expected of them in this very standardized program, or else they risk not getting funded um, in the following year. And so there are these very high stakes audits that happen um, that review their case files, that review a lot of the case notes that they have. And they can't risk showing all of the things that they do on a daily basis beyond what's expected of them because they need to just show that they're meeting the requirements that they're told they have to meet. And so caseworkers were doing all of this extra work that wasn't being reflected in the policy um, and the, the paperwork that they were showing. And so they were put in a very difficult position because they were trying to appease everyone just so that they could keep their doors open and continue serving their clients. I would say that 
This only got worse um, during the Trump administration because the number of refugee arrivals dropped so significantly, which meant that the resettlement agencies had fewer staff. They were dealing with the needs of clients from other agencies in their cities that had closed. They were constantly in a state of um, confusion because they didn't know what was happening with various executive orders, whether they would get shut down in the coming months. And so it was a very difficult and very stressful position to be in. And then with the pandemic, that also made it even more difficult because they had to deal with figuring out how to provide services in a remote fashion and address issues of technological literacy and helping clients get set up in ways that they previously hadn't had to do before. Um, And so I think that whereas a lot of my work has looked at the challenges of being resettled in that experience um, from the perspective of refugees, I think such an important part of the conversation is understanding what resettlement agencies are doing on a daily basis and all of the various types of work that case managers are doing that so far exceed their um, job descriptions. So I think that in discussions of resettlement, I think it's always important to remember that there are people who are working very hard on a daily basis in a very um, exhausting and thankless job. Um, And often they're the ones who sort of get the finger pointed at them as the point of blame when things don't go well, Um, whether it's in, you know, local communities where people aren't happy with the way resettlement has been done. Um, A lot of times they're the ones who get blamed when refugees are dissatisfied with their resettlement experience. Oftentimes resettlement agencies are the ones who get blamed. So it's a difficult role to be in, um, but people wouldn't do the job if they didn't feel so passionately about supporting the program, so. All right, another quote question. So um, the quote starts, refugee histories and dreams of escaping persecution in search of religious freedom are central to American mythology and the power of the quote, American dream, end quote. By the same token, America's global standing was built on the backs of forced migrants, end quote. I see a relation, so specifically in reference to this quote, between the ever-changing status of refugees within American politics um, with similar um, ever-changing status of Indigenous Americans and Black Americans, the two groups that America was built on um, that you discussed. Uh, Could you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important for us to acknowledge that forced migration has been a part of U.S. history in various capacities. Um, Not only is the U.S. a country of welcoming refugees, the U.S. has also has a history of creating forced migration. If we think about indigenous communities um, and so I think that it's it's important to when we think about refugee resettlement and forced migration issues within the U.S., I think it's important to have a full historical scope for what that means and not just sort of. Um, start the timeline in a particularly convenient um, place. I think that, um, you know, as we also look at current issues um, surrounding 
granting asylum in the U.S. It's also important to bring that into conversations of forced migration and resettlement and which groups we're not offering refuge to or which groups we're not um, calling refugees and what that means for the reputation of the U.S. Um, as a country of offering refuge and being a place where people can seek protection. Um, I think that there's a lot of politics that go into who gets to benefit from being a refugee in the U.S. Um, and everything that comes with that status and which groups have historically not been included in those categories that have very real consequences for people's rights um, in the U.S. Um, so my next question is uh, kind of relating some of your earlier work that I saw um, to what you're doing now. So a lot of that work was revolving around the importance and the role of language. How do you think having that as like part of your background has impacted um, how you like move forward in the research that you're doing right now? Yeah, so um, prior to starting my PhD and really getting into this research on refugee resettlement, I worked um, for several years at the Center for Applied Linguistics doing work on language and education policy in the U.S. And obviously that's very central to um, to English learner populations. Um, and I think that as I was doing my field work, um, I sort of always had um, particular interest in hearing what was going on in public school systems because the resettlement program is very focused on adults and getting them set up with jobs um, in housing, all of those services and welfare services that we think of that revolve around adults. And so for the most part, for youth who were arriving, once they were enrolled in schools, that was kind of like the, that was what they needed. They needed to get enrolled in schools and then schools would do the rest. Um, and I think that that there's a lot more that happens in resettlement for youth than just starting school. And they're aware of a lot. They're seeing a lot going on in their families. And there isn't really that same level of contact and support for them. Um, and so I think what was really interesting to see in the research that I did was how schools often come up with their own approaches to um, welcoming refugee students. Schools have different approaches to language policy, English language instruction. And I think that there's a lot of variety and not a lot of consistency necessarily in best approaches for how to support these refugee students when they do um, start schools, particularly for the older youth who might not have as much time before they're expected to graduate. So I think that in discussions of resettlement, it's also really important not to forget about the children who are coming with their families as well, um, and that resettlement can be in a lot of cases, you know, a very important opportunity for these children because they're the ones who have the most time to be in school and pursue various career trajectories. And so it's really important to think about what the school experience will be of these youth and thinking about what are the important things for them to have um, 
as they do begin school in the US. That's a really great point. Um, so in some of your research, you reference the discrepancies between refugee admission ceilings and the number of actual refugees being admitted. Can you talk about like some of the reasons for these discrepancies, especially recently, or um, there, um, could you discuss how like having the cap decrease affects refugee admissions, but also like the length of the process? There is a quote that Sanvi added to the bottom of that question um, that said, thousands of Somali refugees have been living in camps in Kenya for decades, um, with many having submitted their applications um, for settlement over over 10 years ago. So um, it's kind of like how all of those things relate or anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think that especially um, in the last few days, the Biden administration just released that the annual cap for the coming fiscal year will again be 125,000 refugees. And that's great, but it's not a guarantee that that many refugees will arrive. And I think oftentimes when there is this annual announcement of what the cap will be, um, there's an assumption that that means that that many refugees are gonna come in a given year. And there are so many factors that shape how many arrivals actually happen. Um, a lot of those are due to bureaucratic processes that can often take a really long time. Refugees who are resettled go through such a rigorous application process that involves so many layers of reviews and security checks and health checks and medical screenings. These all involve various government agencies and they take a really long time. And so when things are slow, oftentimes um, the number of refugees who actually land in the U.S., they don't meet this um, annual cap. And I think that sometimes there's, depending on the presidential administration, this annual cap has been looked at in different ways. So during the Obama administration, for example, it was a goal to reach. So the administration did everything it could to reach that number every year. And they came really close to actually getting the number of refugee arrivals as they had slots available. During the Trump administration, there was a rhetorical shift where all of a sudden it became a limit not to exceed. Um, and so it's a different way of looking at the cap. It's not, um, we have these spaces that we need to use before we move on to the next year. Instead, it was, we don't want to get more than this many refugees. And so there were a lot of procedural delays. There were obviously the travel bans that got in the way of reaching that um, annual ceiling. And so when there are various delays that are sometimes not related to the resettlement program. Um, like for example, after 9-11, um, there were different pauses put on resettlement. There were different reviews of the security check process that just slowed everything down. And if you look at the annual arrivals um, around that time, there was a huge drop. And so there was a huge gap between the number of refugees who were arriving and the potential number of refugees who could have arrived that year. The same thing happened as a result of the travel ban. The same thing happened during the pandemic. Um, and so all of these things have further created roadblocks to the long, arduous process of um, 
being resettled. And so one of the consequences for refugees who are waiting, who are already in the pipeline um, at some point in their application, is that some of these various checks that they undergo have expirations on them, like their medical screening. And so if someone is waiting for years for their resettlement application process to go through at the final stages, their their medical screening keeps expiring. And so they have to keep doing it again. And then they wait even longer and then it expires again. And so it just adds these further delays to a very long delayed process um, anyway. And so it just creates more uncertainty. It creates a lot more um, fear and false hope um, for the refugees who are waiting. As you said, right, it's characterized by waiting. Um, <laughs> so next question, was there any one interview or interaction that changed your methodology or the outlook on your research or that was especially impactful for you? Yeah, I mean, I think doing qualitative research, there are always those particular individuals or particular moments in interviews that really sort of shape your understanding about the research that you're doing. And I would say um, some of the most impactful interviews I did were with young adults who had been resettled as children, and they were really able to speak about what it was like to be resettled as an eight-year-old, as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old. And oftentimes, um, we don't get to hear the thoughts and feelings of the young people who are coming with their families. And it was so meaningful to hear what it was like from the perspective of a child to go through this resettlement process, particularly when someone in their mid-20s was reflecting back on that experience. And they had the vocabulary of a young adult to be able to articulate what that experience was like to come as a child. And so in the ethnographic work that I was doing in the resettlement agency, I was greeting families at the airport when they landed. I was taking them to appointments. I was, um, you know, spending a lot of time with newly arrived families. And there were a lot of children that were coming. And it was so important that I had also done these interviews that kind of gave a bit more perspective about this child who's been sitting in a two-hour meeting with her parents while they're talking to the welfare office, you know, what's going on in her head? What is she how much is she aware of? It turns out she's aware of a lot that's going on in her family. And what are the forms of stress that she's dealing with? What are the, who is it that she misses in the refugee camp that she just left behind? Who, what relatives did she just have to say goodbye to? Is the home that she left in the refugee camp, was she born there? Was that the only home she's ever had? And what must that be like for her to now all of a sudden be in the U.S.? And that was her first migration. Um, so I think that it was it those interviews that I did um, where people were able to reflect on their experience as children and youth really shaped how I understood the resettlement experience of the young people that I was seeing arrive. Another question, um, like a follow-up. Did that push you to want to include more like youth voices in your research and like, have you been trying to do that? And could you talk a little bit about the experience of trying to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that um, 
it's really difficult. Well, I would say that the um, the protocol for doing research with children is rightfully a very, um, there are a lot of layers that you have to go through of ensuring that children are protected if they're, you're going to be doing research with them. So I was able to, because I wasn't interviewing children, um, I didn't have to go through sort of those more rigorous layers of um, research approval. But I think that for future work, um, something that I'm hoping to do is look at the experience of resettlement from the points of view of multiple members within the same family. Because one thing that I heard a lot about was how resettlement feels very different um, based on what age you are, sort of how much of your future you have to look ahead to. Oftentimes, parents want to be resettled, not for themselves, but for the futures of their children um, and what it will bring, the opportunities that it will bring to their children. And I think that um, young people are very aware of that. And so resettlement is a very different thing based on what age you are when you arrive and particular family dynamics. Um, And so I think that I would love to do research in the future that looks more at intergenerational experiences of resettlement. And some of that came through in the research that I did do in the U.S. Um, And it's something I would like to dig into a lot more. Your response to the last question um, kind of like had another question pop into my head. So I'm sure not all of them are like really, um, their English is not necessarily like, they're not necessarily fluent or there's some kind of language barrier. How did you overcome that? Um, And like, how do you think that like played a part in your research? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, language is a really important thing to consider. And I think that language is often connected to power dynamics as well. And so I was really um, aware of the fact that I was a native English speaker. um, And I was, when I interacted with people who felt comfortable communicating in English, even if they felt comfortable using the language, I was the one who was the native speaker. And there is that power dynamic that exists when someone is functioning in a second, third, or fourth language. I also speak French. And that actually became very useful because a lot of the um, refugees who were arriving during the time of my field work were francophone and coming from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so I was able to, on some occasions, help the resettlement agency um, to communicate with some of the clients through French, um, acting as an interpreter. I was able to be the person who was functioning in the second language as other people felt more comfortable communicating with me in French. And so it was really useful that um, I did speak French and that was a language that I could use to communicate more easily with a lot of the newly arrived families who hadn't had the time to, um, you know, improve their English proficiency. Um, So I think that it was kind of a serendipitous thing that I was able to use my French to communicate with people, but it really helped with my ability to interact with people who had just arrived, because if it hadn't been that case, everything would have had to be through an interpreter. 
my next question. So your research is on the U.S. Resettle, uh, refugee resettlement experience, but you have been writing from the U.K. Do you think that that kind of like distance has had an impact on like how you're viewing and understanding like what's happening or even just like being surrounded by um, a different set of politics of like how how is that impacting how you're understanding what's happening in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think it's helped me to think more clearly about the particularities of the case of U.S. resettlement and also at the same time to think about similarities with the U.S. case and then other European contexts of resettlement. And so it's given me, um, you know, distance to, to understand the U.S. case in its uniqueness, but then also to think about what is it that is works well in the U.S. case that could work well somewhere else? Or what is it that works well somewhere else that could be applied um, in the U.S. context um, to make resettlement work a bit better? It's been really um, generative for me to have conversations with academics who are not as familiar with the U.S. case because it really brings up these points of surprise and you realize oh, it doesn't have to be this way. I'm just so used to it because I've always been studying the U.S. context. So it has been really beneficial for me to share my research um, outside of the um, context that I had primarily been working in. And then also kind of going off of that, could you talk a little bit about, I'm not sure if this is like something you have a ton of experience in, but talking about um, how like academics or academia will translate into policy. Do you have anything to talk about for that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, as an academic, I have the privilege of having a bit of distance to think, to spend my time thinking and writing um, and engaging with other people who are interested in similar topics. To me, though, that work has much greater value if it can be relevant to people's lives. Um, and so, I have always tried to engage in sharing my work with policymakers, with practitioners. Recently, over the summer, um, I had the privilege of participating in a conference that brought together academics, policymakers, and practitioners who work in the space of refugee resettlement in the U.S. And it was this really wonderful environment where everyone was presenting, everyone was sharing. And you really got these different perspectives of the priorities and constraints that everyone is operating under. So I think that academic work comes out very slowly. And I think that's one of the frustrating things when you do really care about the policies that you're um, talking about, is that the things you saw that you really want to say something about might not come out to the world until two or three or four years later. But I think there are other ways to engage in policy, whether it's things like writing op-eds, come out a bit more quickly, presenting work at conferences, um, participating in workshops, things like that. Um, and that's something that's very always been very important to me because I care very deeply about the people who um, are doing the work and who are being resettled um, in the U.S. And I also feel like in my research, I have learned so much from the people that I've met that I really want to also 
convey their expertise and all of the things that they have shared with me um, that I think are so important to understanding resettlement. And I want to make sure that that is shared more broadly as well. Yeah, I love that point about, you know, sharing um, the expertise of someone who we often don't think about as being experts of their own experience. Okay, so I think we have two more questions left. So what is one thing that you want our audience to know about or a common misunderstanding that you would like to correct? That's a great question. Well, I think that maybe one thing that I've been thinking a lot um, in the framing of my book that I'm working on is that just because the resettlement program has a very standardized system of incorporation doesn't mean that by the end of the program, refugees necessarily feel incorporated. And so just because the policy says something happens doesn't mean that the people who are the recipients of the policy feel like it has accomplished that thing. And I think that there are so many other dimensions to feeling a sense of belonging, feeling like they have a home, um, feeling like they're part of a community. And um, there are also a lot of things that are inherent in the experience of forced migration that resettlement can't resolve, like loved ones who may not have been able to travel with them, um, people who are still in situations of extreme vulnerability and precarity in refugee camps or urban areas who did not get resettled with um, the family who arrived. And so there are so many other dimensions um, to resettlement. Even though people feel very happy to have been resettled, there may also be a lot of regret that they are not able to continue their lives in the home country that they would much prefer to be in had the circumstances been different and they could have stayed there safely um, in their homeland in a state of peace. Um, So I think that all of these complications that surround resettlement um, give a much more holistic picture than just sort of this three month to eight month window that the policy says is when resettlement happens because resettlement really is a much more um, dynamic longer term process. All right. Thank you for that. And so I think our last question is, once again, since this is kind of more of an episode about academia and literature, um, so do you have any tips or anything you'd like to share about getting into research relating to migration studies um, or anything else related to like the academic aspect of our conversation today? Yeah, I mean, I think that As I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I first became interested in it, sort of seeing it firsthand and really having all of these questions that were left in my head about why does resettlement this way? Why are people doing things like this? Um, Why did this person feel this way? And so I think that, you know, the best types of research questions are the ones that you really have a a deep, passionate interest in answering and being open to seeing where that takes you, whether it's to different field sites, whether it's to different disciplines, to really think about um, how you can answer these lingering questions in your mind. I think that another thing that I have benefited from tremendously that's kind of 
outside of academia um, is I really enjoy reading memoirs that have been written by authors who have experiences of displacement. And I think it's something that's really shaped my understanding about different individual perspectives of what that experience might mean and all of the complications that come with forced migration. And so I think when you study something in an academic sense, um, I think there are so many other sources that you can gain information and perspective from, um, whether it's, you know, different news stories, um, other types of literature that have been written, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, um, thinking from other disciplines, how have similar topics been discussed, and really sort of broadening your understanding of how complicated these issues actually are um, and where it is that you can make a contribution within that. Makes a lot of sense, kind of considering that interdisciplinary approach, um, which we love. <laughs> um, all right. I think that is all of our questions. So thank you so much for your time. Um, we really, really appreciate it. And we really enjoyed talking with you today. Fantastic experience. Well, thank you both. Yeah, it was a pleasure speaking with you and sharing more about my research. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at our University of South Carolina email address, sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. You can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. This show is produced by undergraduate students at the University of South Carolina. Your hosts for this week were Emily Jensen and Sanvi Somani. This episode was edited by Claire Mattis and produced by Jasmine Rothy. Our executive producers are Claire Mattis and Victoria Halsey. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.